Welcome to today's case file, Chasing Shadows, the Chantel Daily Story. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. Hi, Chantel, and welcome to the Body of Crime podcast show. Your story has been truly inspiring. For those of you who are getting to meet Chantel for the first time, this Chantel has fearlessly led the charge with her impactful petition known as Knight's Law in Australia. What's remarkable is that the resonance of her cause has transcended borders, touching not just her home country, but also striking a chord in the United States. The synergy between the petition's name and the uncanny parallels with the Jesse McFadden case and the Knight's Law originating out of Henrietta, Oklahoma, are more than just coincidences. Chantel's journey as a survivor has brought us here today, and we are thankful that she has generously agreed to share her story with us today. Welcome, Chantel. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So I think we want to start by going back to your childhood and seeing where you grew up and and what was life like in Australia for you when you were young? So I grew up in Manly, which is, you know, in Sydney, it's beautiful, beachy. Yeah, you know, it's obviously really popular with people all over the world. Yeah. My mum was a single mum, but we did have a really close extended family. Um, I didn't have any siblings when I was younger um, until I was like seven. So it was just me and my mum and, you know, aunties and uncles and such. I had a loving extended family with, you know, grandparents and aunties and uncles and, you know, we're all pretty close. Yeah, life was good. You know, we spent lots of time at the beach and out yeah. in the sun and at parks and, yeah, it was Sounds like an amazing, normal. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. Was, yeah, it was normal. I mean, my mum was a bit of a partier, but I loved being around her friends and things like that because so, yeah. I didn't have siblings, so it was, you know, everyone paid attention to me because I was the only kid, <laughs> so it was great. Yeah. In terms of, of education in, in Australia, do you guys start school at like five? Is that is that the same age, like in the U.S.? Yeah, so we do kindy, like, so from like four. Uh, it's different, again, here in like state to state. It's All different, right. you know, when people start school, yeah. and it kind of depends on at what point in the year you change, like mm. turn four to five to six, etc. so it's, it's kind of a bit of a multiple answers to that question but I started kindy at four I think um yeah and then school was five so yeah um my early like I think I did up to year two in New South Wales before after everything we moved states that's really cool after school (laughs) did you go to college or anything or is there anything that you kind of aspired to do after school all I ever wanted to do in my life was to be a mum so I actually had to quit year 12, which is, I suppose, like your senior year or something, to look after my three brothers because my mum went into a coma. So, yeah, quit year 12 to look after my family. Wow. That's pretty noble to do that you sacrifice for your family like that. That is. That's really awesome. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I love my brothers and we're all pretty close and, you know, you, don't, you do what you got to do, you know? Right. Man, you're even more courageous than we thought. <laughs> 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 That's pretty cool. Was school like a big part of your life? Do you feel like it kind of shaped your your life in any way or was it just kind of a normal? Um, look, I mean, I was, I loved school. I loved, yeah, I loved school. I Not, not really academically, but I liked, you know, the social side of it. <laughs> um, that was my favorite You know, too. so I had, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like and I enjoyed it. I 
I did. I really did. So, you know, being a teenager has its ups and downs, but um, I enjoyed it best I could. I kind of ignored that part of my life that, you know, had happened when I was a kid for as long as I could. I probably hit it with, you know, alcohol and stuff more than I should have, but no one's life is perfect, is it? So there's always some level of trauma that we ought to kind of deal with. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you think made you want to be a mom? Like what like really drove you to want to be a mom? I mean, I think I'm pretty maternal. So um, my mom was, she was sick for a long time, um, even before the coma. So I was making bottles and changing nappies and things when I was, you know, eight. So my mom had a bit of a substance issue when I was younger and she had bipolar. So she was sick for a long time. But I enjoyed looking after people. I always have enjoyed looking after people. I think I've probably been a bit mature you know, always. So I just, I knew that I was good at looking after people and I knew I'd be a good mum and I had a lot of love to give and I just wanted, that's all I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. That's very noble. That's a very underrated job. A lot of people don't call it a job. It's a non-paid job. <laughs> it's <laughs> hard it's work. It's the hardest it is, job. Yeah. yeah. It is. It is. <laughs> it is hard. I mean, I own my own business now, yeah. you know, which is not something I intend to do. I just had to do out of necessity because everyone needs money. And my husband works very hard. So yeah. I'm lucky I can just do my own business from home and um, awesome. we just, you know, work around that. And yeah, it's just life's worked out pretty good. That's good. That's really That's awesome. Great. That's what do you do from home? I'm a contractor. So I contract people to like clean businesses and houses and things. Oh, so cool. yeah, I book them and, they go in and do it. I've got a fantastic team. It's great. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So Congratulations. Thank you. So how did you connect with um, Michael Anthony Guider? So he targeted single mothers. At the time that I came into contact with him, he was working at a methadone clinic as a gardener. Um, my mom wasn't on methadone, but her best friend at the time was. So he had met my friend's mum there and then I can't remember if I had met him previously to this but I was at my friend's house and parents were kind of there and and he was there and he was so fun like he it was like he was like a clown he was just you know a fun adult because kids love you know you, you love attention from adults when you're a kid you like to talk to them and play with them and interact with them and you know and he did that very well he he came across as such a kind and happy person um, and fun, just really fun, you know. Um, and so he was at my friend's house and he was kind of talking about going to the beach and things like that. And so me and my friend actually begged our parents to let us stay with him. <laughs> so I begged to stay at my friend's house and he was to kind of, you know, take us to the beach and let us hang out with him that day. And then I, my mum couldn't find me for the next couple of days. <laughs> how I first met him he um, ended up just I don't really know what happened um, once he took us it was kind of immediate like once our parents left um, I realized that my friend's mom was actually asleep or you know kind of unresponsive because of whatever she was on in her bedroom and my mom had left against her better judgment as I said I definitely begged her like yeah. begged and pleaded to be left with Gaida and I suppose it happened really really quickly. The next thing I know, there was, you know, pornographic magazines on the dining table. There was, he had this big camera around his neck. And it kind of, the mood just shifted. And it wasn't even anything he did. It just changed. I don't even know how else to explain it. It just was different. The magazines obviously made us feel very uncomfortable. I remember contemplating jumping out of the second story window because I just wanted to get out of there. But I didn't really know how else to achieve that and I didn't really want to you know offend him because at that point I didn't really know what was going on and then I suppose the next thing I know we were going to the shop to get lollies and coke and that it turns out that he had put the drugs in the coke so I don't really much remember much until however many hours later wow. so yeah that was kind of how it started <laughs> And so during this time, did your mom think that you were at your friend's house? So you don't remember. I mean, this is, you know, early 90s. So it wasn't mobile phones and things like that. And people were just more trusting. I had been at my friend's house before. And I think this was like right before Christmas or right after. I really can't remember. But I know it was around Christmas time. So 
I don't think initially my mum thought anything was really, there was anything to be suspicious of. And I, I know that in this day and age that sounds so unreasonable and I'm such a paranoid mother that, I mean, I certainly wouldn't leave my kids with someone without being in contact with them, but it just wasn't the way it was back then. My mum kind of came the next day to pick me up, but no one was home. And yeah, she kind of couldn't find us. And then it took a couple of days and she eventually, we were at the house and she picked me up. She just said I was really like, I begged for her to allow my friend to come with us. I don't remember any of this. I was still probably had a lot of drugs in my system. And then she said I got home and I fell asleep on the floor for like 24 hours. Wow. Oh my god! I just fell asleep. It was probably two days after that where I had just said, you know, I kind of must have come out of the fog and just said, you know, we need to go get my friend and, and this is what's happened. You know, this is what he's done. And, um, yeah, we went down to the police station. Yeah. Okay, I think my mum had just thought, you know, even my children, like if they go have a sleepover at their friend's house, they, they stay up. They eat lots of junk food. They don't, you know, sleep. They're excited and you come home and they crash. They're just, you know, they're exhausted. So I think that she just thought that that's kind of what had happened. It was weird that she couldn't find me, but it wasn't like there was, you know, we had made these plans to be going out to these beaches and to be going into these parks and that was kind of verbalized before. So I think she just assumed that's what we were doing for those few days. Um, and then she couldn't catch me because obviously, again, no one had mobile phones and things. Right. And then when I had come home and I was so tired, I was emotional about my friend not coming because, you know, I wanted my friend to come home with us, not that there was anything suspicious. And that when I was asleep, that I was just because I was overtired and had, you know, had the humongous couple of days. I was only six. So, you know, I was still quite little. Are you and her still friends to this day? Yeah, well, so we speak over social media and things. We live in different states, but we are still in contact. So, Is there any way that he could have drugged her mom? Well, he met her at a methadone clinic, so I'm, you know, 99% sure he was providing her with heroin or whatever her drug of choice was. Mm. We were asking about the um, the drug of choice that he used to drug his victims, and he probably got it from the methadone clinic. Um, I'm honestly not sure. The drug that he gave us, all of his victims, was like a sedative. I'm not even, yeah, I can't even think of what the what it is actually called, but he could have given it to her mum. I'm not, I'm honestly not sure. It's interesting. We were very curious as to where he would be able to acquire such a large amount of that medication because it seems like he used it regularly. Knowing that he was working yeah. in a methadone clinic, that's probably where he had access to get it. Possibly. I think the drug that he gave us, because like, he put it in everyone's coke, that turns out that's kind of really how he gave it to everyone. Right. Um, you know, just in like a 600 mil coke bottle. And I vividly remember when he gave me the coke bottle that very first time at the lolly shop, I remember being so excited because it was Coke and I couldn't have Coke. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, wow, because she was like, you can have whatever you want, take all your lollies, like, you know, and, yeah. oh, you can have the Coke. And I remember looking at the Coke and it was full to the brim, like right to the lid. And I remember, like, even as a six-year-old, just thinking, oh, that like, that's weird, you know, because usually bottles of anything, you have that space and between air. the lid and the liquid, mm-hmm. right? I remember being like, that, that's, but not, thinking it was sinister, just thinking, oh, like, yeah. that's weird. Coke must go all the way up. I don't know. Like, I just remember thinking it was odd. But, yeah, it's because he put, like, it was just like a liquid sleeping sleeping thing. Like, yeah. yeah. Wow. When you guys went to the police station, was there a lot of resistance there? Did they, like, question that? He had a pretty decent reputation before any of the accusations. Were, did you get any pushback? Not that I remember. Look, honestly, I think every detective that I've I remember speaking to was really great. It was really scary. I still didn't feel well. I felt like spacey and I was scared and I was so embarrassed. There was just a lot of emotions going on for me to really think about how anyone else was reacting. I was kind of just trying to get my story out without making eye contact with anyone because I I remember how much I felt that I needed to get my friend out of there. Like it wasn't, I wasn't even wanting to talk to the police. It's like my, my end game wasn't, okay, he needs to get arrested. My end game was, you know, as a six-year-old, I need to help my friend. Yeah. That was, you know, there was no bigger picture because I was a child. That, that's what it was, was I need to get my friend out of there because I couldn't imagine what else was, was happening. Like you need to, what you need to understand is that it's not like we have this, 
this exact memory of everything he did. You know, I can remember the photos. Me and her can also remember different things, and it would have been because the drug would wear off before he gave us more um, at different times or before he realised that the drug was wearing off kind of thing, before he gave us more. I remember taking photos and I remember being at all these different locations but not remembering how we got there. And like I said, I remember certain things more than she does and, and vice versa. So it wasn't like when I was telling my family and telling the police officer that I had this exact memory because everything was still kind of coming out of my system. I felt or I felt still very confused about what had happened. It was just this need to help my friend because I knew that what had happened was bad and it was scary. And yeah, that's, yeah, that's what was happening. Yeah. And was your friend, was she okay? I really don't know. I, I don't think he was there anymore. Yeah. I know that my mum had got to the apartment just after the police got there because she was wanting to get there first. No. Um, <laughs> you know, cause it was all, <laughs> as you would, I mean, I feel like that's right. just a, that's how you would react, isn't it? Because yeah. you would be, I know that's how I would react. Yeah, she was safe. She, um, he wasn't there and, or he was arrested and I think he was arrested at his house. So yeah, he wasn't there. And then they proceeded to find hundreds and hundreds of photos that he'd taken over the years of victims. So wow. videotapes and yeah, lots of things like that. Scrapbooks, he kept all that type of thing because and yeah, that's what the camera around his neck was for, was to you know, take photos and things of the things that he was doing and getting us to do. So, yeah. I think it's so incredible that you had, even at that young age, that you had courage to say something and to make something happen because there's so many kids who think that they have to respect, that part of respecting elders is doing what they say and thinking that a grown-up isn't going to have you do something that, you shouldn't be doing or that's wrong to be doing. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's Absolutely. incredible that you had that courage at such a young age. Thank you. You know, I do remember thinking, you know, I didn't want anyone to get into trouble. I needed to get my friend to safety, but I really knew that what he had done wasn't okay. So it wasn't like, I don't know. It was in the main thing for me. It wasn't even like worrying about him. I was, I was mortified. That I feel like that's the biggest thing with with people who have these crimes committed against them is that it's just this, even as a kid, even as an adult where I knew better, I felt like I had it must have done something to make him think that that was okay. Like I had, you know, and that really messes with you. And yeah. like I said, that even as an adult, I was feeling that. And, and I have the ability to know that that's obviously not right. I was a child, but being a child especially when like a, a someone who is hurting you saying certain things to you, you do believe it. You know, you believe like even on one of his interviews, he said that, you know, we were, we were asking for it. Like we laid in a specific way or whatever. And I remember him doing that interview. He did it much later and it was on the TV. And I remember just cringing and thinking, Oh my God, everyone is going to see this and they are going to think that I asked for it, but I know I know realistically like that's not what people are going to think because I was a six-year-old kid, but it was like that was so embarrassing and it's the embarrassment and the indignity and just the humiliation that is harder to get past rather than the, I don't know, you kind of feel like you're letting people down because you've had something happen to you. Like you, you know, you just, it's just like it's not inconvenience, it's not the right word, but it's like, you don't want to be labeled. Yeah. Right. I think that this, that's a big part of what predators kind of rely on is that feeling of guilt that you have as to not knowing whether you did something to preempt what happened. And so then you end yeah. up not telling anyone because you feel like you may be partially responsible, but the reality is a six year old child doesn't know anything about, you know, what was going on. That That's not something that a six year old child would even know. And Part of a, yeah. a pedophile's, their defense mechanism is to deflect and to say, oh, they want, they did this to me. And so I was just reacting to that. You're talking about an adult Absolutely. and a six-year-old child, you know? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And that's definitely what he, it's 100% that's what he did. I think every sort of way that he could try to make himself the victim, he mm-hmm. did, um, which they, a lot of them do, you know? And yeah. it's, it's just not, it's, it's such a slap in the face. But it was a very, it was such an internal battle for me to be able to talk myself 
out of the way that I was thinking because I knew the way that I was thinking I must have done something to lead him on was not right, but it's hard to convince yourself when you're thinking that way, even though you know it's not realistic. But, you know, so I think that me having – I had a a fantastic popper who – you know, he was just this brilliant man. So I feel I knew that men weren't like that. I knew that there was adults interacted with kids in such a different way when they weren't doing the wrong thing, you know. So I think that's how I knew what Gaida had done was so wrong because I had all these positive interactions with people in like other adults in my life. That's awesome. Yeah. That makes a difference. That makes such a huge difference in, in how you cope and how you how you recover and how you find the courage to move forward and continue to fight. So that's great that you had that support structure. It's so important. Well, I, yeah, I think that the way that my family reacted when I told them what Gaida had done, like they didn't question it. It was not even, a, are you sure? Or, mm-hmm. you know, there was nothing. It was, okay, this has happened. Let's, we're going to the police. There was no, yeah. it was just supportive and um, they believed me, you know, which is that I feel like, changed the way that I felt about myself and that I, you know, anything that Gaida must have said to me went out the window because all these people that I knew loved me and who I loved and who I respected, they were on my side immediately. And I feel like that is what made me be okay. You know, I knew I had them behind me. Yeah. That's great. That's That's awesome. And that's good for parents to hear because I think it's important to be supportive of your kids. Yeah, look, I think when it comes to child abuse, I think that you need to be guilty until proven otherwise. I don't think that there is room for you to question a child. And, you know, obviously there is cases where it's probably, it might not be the way someone's said it is, but children don't come up with those types of lies often enough for it to be questioned. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, you have got to believe that child because they need that, especially directly after it takes so much courage to come forward. It's like I probably actually threw up. You know, it is this terrifying, terrifying thing to do because, like I said, you really feel like you've let your family down. It's awful. It's, it's so awful and it's so embarrassing, yeah. you know. And so if you have found that courage as a child to tell an adult something's happened and you're met with, you know, questions and like, oh, are you sure or anything like that, you would just retract because yeah. – it's too much. You, you're not. It's not your the child or the victim's responsibility. Then prove that they have been hurt. You know that they need to not in that moment. They just need to be protected. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you start injecting that doubt into your child's mind, they also start to start to doubt yes. themselves as well. Yeah. So it's important to be yes. supportive. And then yes, absolutely. And then it makes it easier to believe all the things that you know the person who hurt them has said. So they start hearing all the things that the perpetrators told them and then they they just it, it's way easier to kind of just then turn around and go well you know what no one believes me i'm going to just shut down because yeah. it's too hard to sit here and prove to you that i've been abused like that's awful i couldn't even imagine that feeling yeah yeah i'm so glad that you didn't have to experience that sounds like you have a great yeah, a great so, family so, am I. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. going through this process so after he gets arrested were any of you guys required to go in and speak or testify or anything or have to see him in court or did they make you guys do anything like that yeah so it turns out that Gaida had been offending for quite some time you know years and years even before I was born he had victims ranting back I think it was you know 20 years or something before um, I put him in jail so initially we had to go back and forth I suppose to the police station with the detective to do interviews and to make statements um, I didn't have to go to court when I was a child. I didn't have to face him in court until it was like 2019. That was horrific. <laughs> that was a lot harder than I had ever anticipated that that was going to be. So, um, but I mean, even doing those first initial interviews as a kid, it was heartbreaking. There's like no other word for it. It's not even that you've got to relive what's happened. It's just mortifying. I think I even said some of the, because they showed you photos, like they showed me photos that he'd taken. And for me as a six-year-old to realize that, you know, I thought everyone had saw them. I thought, oh my God, everyone in this whole police station has seen these. My mum's seen them. You know, my friend's seen them. Like it just was, that was heartbreaking. I felt completely, I felt disgusting. That it was just awful. And I feel like that probably 
seeing those photos was worse than having to say what had happened to me because I knew at that point people had seen it. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. It's something that is private then that then becomes public. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, it just broke my heart to know that my mum and, and whoever else had seen it. It just was embarrassing. It was just yeah. completely embarrassing. <laughs> there isn't another word for it. How did you feel if if you remember at that age when you started hearing that there was other girls? Did you feel like your speaking up or coming forward was powerful or did it make you feel worse? Like how did that make you feel? So I don't think I knew that there was other victims until it would have been when was it 2002 I think when he got charged with Samantha that I was old enough, I think I was 16 and so I think I was old enough to actually read his charges and then I was, look, I understood that, you know, there was over 60 charges of child sexual assault and I read his other victims and or was told rather, you know, so it wasn't until much later that I actually was aware that it was more than just me and my friend. I didn't understand any of that when I was six. It definitely wasn't until much later that I realised there was other people. And so throughout all of this, what kind of, so before they were looking at letting him out on parole, when he came up for parole, what kind of got you going with wanting to advocate to keep him in prison? Like what kind of motivated you to do that? It's funny, you know, I actually ignored it as much as I could. Whenever he was up for the first, he could have, he was eligible for parole. I had 60 minutes contact me. And that shook me to my core. At that point, there was, you know, maybe five people in my whole life that knew about Gaida, and that's not including my brothers who I'm very close with or my husband or any of my close friends. I think I had, you know, my best friend know, you know, my mum, my grandfather and my auntie at that point, and that was it. Nobody knew. So my 60 Minutes contacted me and was like, because I'm kept up to date with what's happening with Guida through victim services. So, you know, they let you know when they're up for parole and what the outcome is and things like that. So when I knew he was up for parole, I was writing letters to the parole board saying why I thought, you know, this is like a behind the scenes kind of thing, just like why don't let him out, why I think he shouldn't be let out just from a victim's point of view. And then when 60 Minutes got in contact and offered, you know, for me to come and speak about it I just knew that like I had been writing these letters and it was just getting closer and closer to him being released and I knew that I had to do what I could to prevent it otherwise I just wouldn't have forgiven myself I felt like if the six-year-old little me could you know make these statements and stand up for her friend and stand up for herself that I knew the adult me could do that also and try and prevent him from having any more victims six-year-old you would be proud Mm -hmm. (laughs) thank you it Thank must you. have been tough too, because now, like you said, it, you had gotten down to like only five people knowing, and now you've got to expose yourself yeah. to the world. So that's a huge step. That's a huge leap. Yeah, I know it was a, it was necessary though to achieve keeping him away. So it was. I feel like the payoff was greater than you know long term gain, short term pain. But in saying that. I had, I think, like 24 hours to tell my husband, my brothers, and my other close friends. (laughs) It was something like a really short time to tell everyone. And I can't even remember what I told them because it was just something that I'd I'd not hidden from people, but I just didn't feel like it was something I needed to share with everyone either. I think the hardest thing with telling people was it's the look people give you, like it's like you have to reassure them and make sure that they're okay. And that's, <laughs> it's a, that's emotionally draining because you're just like, it's I'm okay. Like that was a long time ago. Are you okay? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, and then, and even though in that moment, I'm obviously getting prepared to, to come and tell everyone nationally as well. So, and I'm trying to, I'm hoping that this stops him getting out because it, it wasn't a guarantee either. And I knew it was just a short-term thing. Like I knew this was just going to stop this early parole um, and then we'd have to fight again to keep him in jail for longer if possible and et cetera, et cetera. It was just the beginning of the fight. I feel like, yeah, six-year-old me started it and I needed to just see it through. I just feel like I had more to lose now because I had this whole new life and I had children and I had friends and 
the main thing people said was like, oh, you would never know, you know, and then I just feel like people looked at me completely different, you know, because I'm an outgoing person and, you know, we're always doing something and always busy and social and everything and I just, I didn't want people to treat me like I was made of glass, you know, even though I may have felt like that in the moment because I was facing this person who'd done these horrible things. I didn't need to be reassuring other people in that moment, but they were really good. People were really supportive and, you know, they helped share the petitions and they came on the marches and it was good that they knew because they had that support system. I should have just told everyone in the beginning. They were brilliant. Everyone was fantastic. Even people that I didn't know were just incredible. Yeah. It's funny because our fears sometimes imagine a world where you're not accepted, you're not supported, and that keeps you, Yeah, you know, that really holds you back. And then when you, when you expose yourself and you see the level of support that you really have, it's, it's, it's profound. It's definitely Absolutely. Profound. I mean, it was empowering. I feel like it's such a cliche, but because I spoke out, I, I really feel like I helped other people find their voice. I had people message me. Um, when I did the petitions and the marches, the amount of people that came forward and just said, you know, you've helped me speak up and you've helped um, me not feel alone. And it was just like, okay, wow, like I could have had this community forever. And it was just, I don't know, it was just powerful. And it just yeah. was such a release because it just felt like I didn't need to be scared of him anymore. He, They should just be scared of their victims because the victims hold the power. They can't take it away, you know, because we can just take it back by... Yep. making them accountable and fighting for their harsher punishment. Yep, absolutely, 100%. So when you came up with the petition, what was your main goal with the petition? Was it for him specifically? Um, was it for people like him? The first one was to have it so he didn't, parole wasn't granted. And so we got like over 60,000 signatures in two days with that one. Wow. Um, and then the roller from, yeah, and then, we ended up with a lot. It was, that's what I mean, like the support and the community, it was just, people are outraged and change will happen. They just, we need to be loud enough for them to not ignore us, you know? So he didn't, he ended up not even applying for parole because there was so much community outrage. He wasn't going to get it anyway, you know? So the petition was just, that first one was to keep him in jail. The second petition, which was just as successful, was for Night Law. And it was just everything kind of fell into place. Like we ended up, for his night saw it was to have the nobody, no parole, you know, to keep anyone who was in jail for killing someone if they didn't provide a body that they wouldn't be released, which I feel like is a no-brainer. And I don't know why that wasn't automatically the way things work. But, you know, the law is broken. The system is broken, as we know. But anyway, when I did that petition, it was fantastic. We did the marches in Adelaide and in Sydney. We did the last one in Sydney we did at Bondi where Samantha Knight was taken, um, where Gaida took her. So we had her school friends and family and the community who very much remember her being taken and, you know, this little nine year old schoolgirl who, you know, that would have been horrible as a community and for her family, but everyone came along. It was you know, it was great. So in that instance Gaida was still in jail but he was going to be released. We didn't know that at that time, but he was going to be released. But since then, nobody, no release has actually been passed in New South Wales. So I just think with everyone fighting together, whether it was me, whoever, you know, all these other people who have fought for laws like Night Law, it's made a difference because the government, they heard it. They heard it. We did, you know, so much media and with social media and everything, everyone's voices are able to be heard. Yeah. Um, and I just think that we were too loud to be ignored. So those changes were actually made in New South Wales, which is fantastic. That's awesome. What type of challenges did you run into, if any, while you were trying to organize marches or when you were trying to, like when you pushed out the petition, like how did you do that? How did you get such a widespread, you know, response? I think <laughs> with the marches, I know that there was certain things I was meant to apply for in terms of, you know, with council and, you know, because we shut roads down and things like that. And I know legally you're not meant to do that. So I think I was a bit sneaky with the way I did it because <laughs> I would coincide it with doing, you know, I would do interviews and make it and I would say in the interview that we would be marching on this specific day on this road. And the police were great. To be fair, they, they had to come down and, you know, tell me off a little bit that they weren't rude about it. They knew, you know, it was a good cause. 
but they also know, like, you know, there was things that I should have done because I shut down tram lines and everything, so which <laughs> caused a bit of chaos. But I, the way I did it was I put it out there, so it was like this is going to happen, and you can't stop it because I've already put it in these interviews yeah. and magazines and things. So it's in motion, you know, I was very <laughs> yeah, it's happening. <laughs> so and I feel and that's that's just that's the way I roll. <laughs> so I just it was going to happen, you know. <laughs> I think um, once I have my mindset to something, I, it's going to happen. And I, I you know, it's, I'd rather ask for forgiveness and permission. And that's very much something I live by. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's, it's pretty powerful. Yeah. You put it in motion. And, and once it's in motion, you might as well just ride the wave. It, it, there's no way to stop it. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And I think social media, you know, it is a, it's a blessing and a curse, but you can use it to your advantage, you know. So I made, you know, Facebook events and, and yeah, that with the interviews and having it printed in magazines, there just wasn't much that they could do at that point because it was just people showed up. We had people with motorbikes. We had massive signs. I even sneakily got um, like a company to make a sign for us, which they weren't meant to, but where they did it, this huge, huge, huge sign that was like in front of us all marching. And it was, yeah, everything just worked in our favor in the end. I just think how could you be mad at something that was such a worthy cause, you know? And it wasn't like saying I was going to go on all day. And I think everyone knows a child or has a child or, you know, just has common sense that pedophiles should just stay in jail at the end of the day. They shouldn't have a second chance. And our petitions were to bring light to night's fall, but to also push for extreme changes, not these little, like, let's increase their jail time. It's that they should not be given second chances. If you yeah. can commit a crime against a child, you don't deserve a second chance because the reoffending rate is so high, you know. And also, if you can hurt a child, I just don't think that there is rehabilitation. No, I just, I real, I just don't, you know. I think, I mean, even with Guider, he obviously eventually got out after we fought to keep him in, and he's already back in jail. So because he he actually um, broke his supervision. One of his supervision. One of the requirements of his role. So he had like, yeah, he had like, he was, he ended up, because they fought so hard, he ended up getting um, like an extended supervision order of like five years, which is really high. Most pedophiles don't get that. They get like two years if we're lucky. And he ended up getting 56 conditions when he was released that he had to abide by, which is really, really high. Um, It's like stricter than any parole had been. And he still reoffended. And it was like within two years he reoffended. And I'm pretty and sure was, they you know, all do. So, and he was caught. They do. Absolutely, yeah. they do. And if they, and just because they haven't been caught doesn't mean they don't. I think that they've got the internet as well. Mm-hmm. And, that, you know, they've got social media. And it's essentially a community for pedophiles, isn't it? It's they can be invisible and they can find like-minded, I don't want to say people, but it's just a lot easier for them to access children and child pornography material um, and things like that. And I just, I don't think letting them out of jail is should be an option. I mean, even Guider, he like refused to be medically castrated. He refused to have the medication that would stop his sex drive, and yeah. they still let him out. Yeah. So I feel you know, and he didn't give up her body, and there's all these things that he didn't do that if he was truly remorseful, you'd think he would do right. And it's not this is not a once off. You know, right from wrong. You know, hurting a child's the wrong thing to do. So if you've hurt a child. That should be it. You don't. There's two places in the world for pedophiles and child abusers, and that is prison or hell. That is it. There is nowhere else. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. And, and a lot of times we wait until too long, and, and we wait until an extreme case like like the Goethe case, where where you have to wait for for more than sixty incidents to happen before someone yeah. you know takes an action and where you can stop it from the very beginning. The first time you offend, you're just never getting out again. You're not going to do it again. Part of the problem is that of the few people that come forward, think of the hundreds that don't. They actually have done research where they talk to people anonymously submitted information about their lifestyles. And a lot of them said that they had never been caught. And the percentage was so high of people who were offending and who had never even been picked up. So the little that we do know... Yeah. is such a small portion of what's, what's actually happening. Yeah. Yes, and isn't that terrifying? It's it is. So, if you think about the ones that we don't know, 
right? And then you think about the ones that we do and then we're letting them back out. So what does that say about people like and, and our government system and our court yeah, system? Our culture, so yeah, you put everything. All of these, all of these, yeah, all of these child abusers and pedophiles who are caught and released, mm-hmm. that's bad enough. And we yeah. know we have these statistics that say that we have all of these ones that haven't been caught. Mm-hmm. You know, that's broken. If that's not a broken system, I don't know what is. Yeah, agreed, 100%. It's crazy that it's broken in Australia and it's broken in the US and I'm sure it's broken in Mexico and it's broken in in Canada yeah. and it's, you know it's definitely broken all over the world yeah I think you know I mean we all know about human trafficking and all that type of thing mm-hmm. that the internet and everything has just made it easier it's, yeah. it's made it easier but you would think the internet has been around for I mean how long how many years you would think that the police that I mean they're just trying to play catch up at this point but do you yeah. not think that they should have something in system. I mean, if there's certain, if you Google certain things, it comes up, right? Like it will flag it. Yeah. It should, you should, or if it doesn't, it should, you know, you should have that for pedophiles. For no one pedophiles, if they Google it or anyone, it, it yeah. should just be, if you Google a certain thing, it flags it and you'll, you know, someone comes to see you. It shouldn't be that difficult to track them down. They know their little the words that they use and their little coding and things like that. So make that public knowledge. You know, like the thing is, is that there, I feel like that they are doing a lot, but I, I just think that more can be done and should be done. Yeah, and absolutely. I just don't think pedophiles and child abusers are held accountable. I just, the sentencing is not, it's not good enough. That yeah. It's not a deterrent because they get a slap on the wrist and they get let out. Yeah. knowing that they're going to be let out and released. And then and even when they're in jail, they're in protective custody. So it's not, I mean, I don't know if that's the same there, but here they're in protective custody. So it's like you, they just get to fly through jail and then they're released. And then they've given this essentially a, a secret identity. So yeah. in Australia, we I have no right to the victim to know where Guider is. You know, when he's released, I'm not allowed to know where he is. I can put forward to say that I don't want him to go to certain places, you right. know, so he's not allowed there while he's on the supervision order. Because once that's over, he can do what he wants. He right. can fly different states. He can, you know, so I'll, I'll never know. I could not imagine seeing him, like walking on the street and just seeing him. It would be, I don't know how I could react to that because that's, like, how could you put a victim through that? Yeah. You know, like. In Australia, yeah. do you have to sign up for the program for them to let you know what's happening? So when you were talking about them letting you know, like when he's up for parole and victim services, do you have yes. to sign up? Yeah, you do. So you do. Yeah, so you're off. You are offered it, and it is a fan, it's a fantastic service. I mean, you get counselling and things like that. I know that my friend that I was with, she chose to not sign up because she's too scared that he will find her address. You know, and I, I'm sure that there are so many victims like that. And I don't know. For me, I just feel like I needed knowledge is power for me. I needed to know where he was. I needed updates. I, you know, I needed things like that. But I completely understand where she's coming from at the same time, you know. Yeah, this case that we've been working on in here in the U.S. in Henrietta, Oklahoma. So this guy, he went to prison for rape and it was a violent rape against a minor. And he got 20 years for the rape. And so in this particular state in the U.S., they offer, um, they call it an 85% rule where you have to serve a minimum of 85% of your sentence, regardless of whether or not if you have good behavior. And so basically what they do is you get to stack up these good behavior credits. And then when you hit that 85%, if you have enough credits to be released, you'll be released at that 85% mark. And so his, not only was his victim not notified, who wanted to be notified, but he had offended while he was in prison. He had multiple, multiple infractions while he was in prison. And he had a pending case oh when God. he was let out. Yeah. And the girl was yeah. 16 when she met him. And they had been pushing her case out for almost six years. And so he gets out of prison. Oh, my God. And he gets out of prison and she had been, she was scared. So she had been monitoring him. And she found him on TikTok And he had a bunch of girls on his account. So she reached out to some of the girls and she was like, hey, like, let me tell you who this guy is and let me talk to your parents. And um, so the, you know, one of the, a couple of the girls, you know, let her talk to their parents. And she said, listen, this is a dangerous guy. And I have a case pending against him. You know, he keeps getting out of us. Yeah. So then he ends up 
marrying a girl who has kids and one of the the woman's kids she had a friend come over to spend the night her best friend and another girl come over and he murdered everybody and then killed himself we know yes the investigation isn't done right now there's a whole lot of other things involved but so this is the case that we've been advocating for this night's law here and the reason that they named it that is because the school district that all the kids went to so and so in total there was five kids that were killed and all went to the same school district and their mascots called the knights and so the other day we've been having a hard time like getting people to sign the petition and there's you know there's a number of different laws on there that you know that the families are trying to change and rightfully so um they need to be changed because we have some huge gaps and this guy should have never have gotten out of prison um absolutely yeah and then to top it off the girl who had the pending case the night before they found everybody he sent her a message and basically told her you know, this is all your fault for continuing with this case, basically. And so, of course, when she finds out the next day, it's shattering to her. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so when we've been trying to advocate for this petition, we've been getting messages from people saying, like, you're posting the petition too much or there's something in there I don't uh, like. Right. And what? Yeah. And so, and it's frustrating. And one of the people that's really pushing this petition a lot is one of the family members. And so she's not getting discouraged. She actually reminds me of a lot of you. <laughs> she's not getting discouraged, <laughs> but she's getting frustrated. She's like, I don't understand. Like, yeah. this should be such an easy, like, yes, I'm going to sign it. Yes, I'm mm-hmm. going to pass it along. And so she's been getting, you know, super frustrated. And she's like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. It This seems like a no brainer. And um, I said, yeah, you know, some I people, definitely felt like that. Yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, some yeah. people are so, I almost they don't want to like, get involved. People, yeah. yeah. People like it's a touchy involved, topic. Mm-hmm, yeah. I can definitely relate to that. It's, it's like a dirty subject. Like, you know, people still have this taboo about it. And if it doesn't directly affect them, they don't want to be involved, which yeah. is sad. But in saying that, you, you just got to hit the right audience. And, yeah. Unfortunately, people are cheap. So it's if once the ball is rolling, it's a lot easier to get people on board and you have to take risks. So when I did the petition, it definitely helped because of the media coverage. But having to keep it out in the media, I felt like I was coming across as, oh, you know, well, look at me, I'm a victim. Let's keep talking about pedophiles. Let's talk about child abuse. You know, no one wants to talk about it, but I'm going to rub it in your face almost. Mm-hmm. because it was infuriating because I thought, how come people aren't up in arms about this? Yeah. Like, it's children. And you've got, I'm not saying one subject is, is worse than the other, but, you know, you think about COVID and climate change and things like mm-hmm. that, and you have thousands and thousands, thousands upon thousands of people marching, and I'm just thinking, yes, that is awful, and whatever that, you know, you have the right to petition and march against for whatever you want, but, but how are you not marching to protect children and to fight for better better punishments and um, to keep pedophiles and things in jail. Like, how is that not a priority for everybody? Because as I said, everyone knows a child at least, you know? So how is this not a priority for everyone? I could could not wrap my head around it. So I knew that I had to do drastic things like shut streets down because I had to make people pay attention. Yeah. That's the only way, you know, you have to, you have to, like, otherwise people will ignore you. So with the petitions, I think, I mean, I shared them everywhere on every, and I know people got annoyed. People would, I shared them on, I don't know if they got them in America, probably do, this sounds so weird, but, you know, in Australia we have like marketplace and we have like community groups for our, wherever people live, like whatever suburb or state or um, area. Like, so, you know, if you're in that area, you know, so, and they're all over Australia. So I shared my petition everywhere. I joined every group I could possibly join and I shared it. I shared the petition over and over. Um, And there's so many child, like, um, fighters against child abuse, fighters against child abuse, all that type of thing, and they will help. The amount of audience that they have helps as well because everyone who's on those, you know, will help. So it is about kind of finding the right platform and meeting the right people and doing some research, speaking to other victims as well that may have already started petitions or have any sort of platform, TikTok and things like that, reaching out to people, 
just using it. And it is just a, you know what, if you're going to annoy people, it doesn't matter because you know you're doing it for the, the right reasons. Yeah. And if they kick you out of the group, then that just wasn't the right group anyways. <laughs> it you doesn't know? matter. <laughs> yeah. and I, absolutely. And I definitely did. I, I definitely got taken out of groups and I had people, you know, go, oh, well, why is this thing shared here? And I don't want to read this. But it's like, what do you, what do you mean? I don't want to be having to talk about it. But here we yeah. are. It's a problem. So <laughs> we make these changes. And I, yeah. Yeah, I just thought, help me make these changes and you won't have to listen to me anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Sign the petition and I'll leave you alone, <laughs> yep, you know? That's it. It's simple. <laughs> no action is an action, you know? <laughs> that's right. I'm like, it takes two seconds. Click the link. I'm not asking yep. for anything else. Just click the link and, you know, so it's, I don't know. I just, I did. I pro- I probably badgered people and I badgered my friends and and community to share it because it was important. And I really did feel like I called people out when they were, you know, yeah. not wanting to. Because I, I was like, I said, if you're not, if you're not supporting me, you're supporting them. So yeah. you give me a reason why you won't sign this petition that will make change because there isn't a good enough one for me. You know, because yeah, if it. you were not, if you don't have my back, you've got theirs. There's no that's reason it. you shouldn't want this change. Yes, there's no neutral in this. Yeah. There's no neutral. No, yeah. uh, absolutely. And I was, I, it needs to change all over the world. I think that there is so many people that want these changes, they just don't really know where to start. And yeah. they kind of get a bit like, if they get pushed back, you know, like you're speaking about this girl and it's awful. But I, my advice to her would just to be keep moving forward, reach out to news stations, reach out to like, yeah, community groups, fighters again, like all of the, the Facebook groups, things like that. I would reach out to them because people will help. Like there are people... And if you make enough noise, the right person will pay attention and then it kind of can snowball yeah. because unfortunately to get any sort of change, you do need the media's help. You do. Now, I was just going to say, you have to yeah, be have unapologetic to be in your approach. Annoying. Yeah. <laughs> unapologetic. Absolutely. Yeah, loud and annoying. To, yep. Absolutely. Yes. I'm just excited about shutting down really some streets. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was, I mean, I had this big old megaphone and it was great. Like I just, it was, yeah, it was cool. Um, I think the hardest thing was carrying that megaphone and that giant sign on the airplane over to a different state. That was a bit hard, but it was good. I I know that I was nervous each time I did a march that people wouldn't show up, but I also knew that no matter what, I would be marching, you know? So, and that was, if it was just going to be me and just going to be my husband, that was going to be fine. Like I had to do it regardless of whether I had 50 people, 100 people, because it doesn't matter if you're loud enough you're going to sound like there's a hundred people there. And I was definitely, I can definitely be loud enough to make it sound like there's a hundred people there. So, <laughs> <That's> you <beautiful>. know, <laughs> yeah. What do you feel like has been the most impactful thing about all of the advocating that you've done? And what would you really like to see overall happen everywhere? Not just in Australia. The biggest thing that has come from it all is, the nobody, no parole or no release being um, passed in New South Wales is the biggest thing. And I'm not, I can't take full credit for that because it's has, you know, it's made a few people push for that for lots of different organisations and different reasons and things like that, lots of different family members. But I do feel like I have a helping hand with that and I think that's the best thing that's come from it. But also me making sure Gutter's face was out there in the media, it, it's kind of, I feel like it's made it so he can't just sneak out of jail and and hide and people won't be aware of what he looks like because I was really that was I was really worried about that. So I think people knowing about him is gonna make a difference in keeping kids safe. in particularly with him, obviously. I'd like to see changes in everything to do with pedophiles and child abusers. I think that the only punishment that is enough for pedophiles is to just stay in jail. And people talk about, oh, it's going to cost so much money and, and this and that. But, you know, what about the the other side of it where you let them out? It's such a greater risk and them going back into jail and all the court fees and things like that. Is that not a, a bigger cost, you know, and having to keep supervising them and, and checking on them? And that's a cost anyway. So and putting them in this protective housing and, I think that the the whole court system needs to be reformed in the way that we che- we treat child predators. The punishments need to be much more of a deterrent, and right now it's just not there. It's we're missing the mark. So I think that it needs to be taken more seriously, and that victims just deserve so much better than what they've been 
given at the moment. Oh, for sure. And I think that there would be such a drastic change if they actually made those types of changes. You would prevent some of the monsters that are created later. You would prevent some of the costs of the different types of therapies and the different types of things that happen when, you know, when children are abused and things that they experience later in their lives. I think the cost, I would argue that the cost is much lower by prevention. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, look, victims are let down. I was let down. Samantha Knight and her family let down. God, other victims were let down. All victims of child abuse are, are just left horrifyingly in the aftermath of how their life has been changed and their family. It's awful knowing that their abuser will one, be, one day be allowed to live their life again and to be free because once you've been abused as a child, it just changes your life forever. And I just don't think pedophiles live with that. They being free in all sense of the word because they are not remorseful and we're just left in the aftermath. So since you've been doing all of this, what kind of support or resources do you think should be available to survivors of abuse or violence, both for like their healing process Um, and even just in engaging in advocacy? I know with victim services, you can get counseling. So Whenever I need to speak to someone, I can speak to someone who, you know, have victim services. I think it's important. I think over the years, I have been, you know, when I was a child, I not was made to, but I was given an option to speak to psychologists and things like that. And it just wasn't for me then. I wasn't ready. Later in life, when I had my children, I tried again and it helped. I think that there should be kind of like a lifetime of counselling available because it's not necessarily right after that a victim is wanting to speak or ready to speak or able to speak. Um, and there is different trigger points through your life that make counselling uh, an option, you know, or a better option. Like I said, I, w- I felt like I was okay, relatively okay, until I had my own children. And then that was this whole new... And then even more specifically, when my daughter turned six, which was the age I was when Gaida got me, I think that, yeah, counselling should be just made available throughout a victim's life, no matter what stage or and how long it's been because I've definitely needed counselling at different points in my life because of just different trigger points. Yeah, I just think the biggest thing is is if they if victims knew that their abuser was never going to get out of jail, I think that that would make them sleep a lot better at night. That's great. That's a great point that you make. I never thought of that before in terms of dealing with trauma. And I think that we always think that the line is perpetually going down. Like you're constantly getting better and better and better. You're starting from a from a terrible place and you're always getting better. But that's not always the case. Sometimes mm-hmm. you're okay at first. It's not. You know? And then you're yeah. not okay. Yeah. You know? <laughs> then you're okay Absolutely. again. <laughs> you know? Do yeah, your, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Do your kids yeah. feel like, like you're... Yeah, absolutely. Do your kids feel like you're overprotective? Or do you feel like you're overprotective? Um, I feel like I've definitely tried to not pass my anxieties and things onto my kids because I want them to have a very free childhood. You know, we go camping and, and they go out to the park and they ride their bikes and my kids are only, you know, seven and ten. But I need them to have that normal childhood without the fear because they deserve that. I don't right. want Gaida to take that away from them, right? But in saying that, I've been very open with my kids and it's not overprotective. It's, I believe education is the key. I've taught them about tricky adults. Um, and not necessarily stranger danger because strangers aren't all dangerous. You know, you can still say hello and things like that, but they know not to go near cars. They know not to go off with anyone except treats. And when I say tricky adults, I've always taught them that adults don't ask children for help. You know, they don't, an adult won't say, can you help me find my puppy? Can you help me with my child? Can you come with me? You know, adults don't do that. Um, so they're being tricky. So that's what I've always taught my children. So I, I need them to have their freedom but also with knowledge that not everyone is safe, you know. So I, I don't want them to be scared of the world, but I just want them to be knowledgeable that to trust their instinct and just to kind of keep their guard up and think smart, you know. So, yeah, I need them to have their freedom because they, they deserve it. Kids deserve to be free and they deserve to feel safe, but they should have the knowledge that not everyone means well. Yeah. yeah. And that's really smart. Sometimes I feel like, you know, parents think, oh, my kids are too young to talk to them about this or that. And I really think that you're really equipping your children by having open and honest communication with them so that they're empowered to recognize things that aren't right. You know, in saying that, I'm pretty sure that's what my, I mean, my mom did the same thing. So that's really why I was so forthcoming in the beginning is because yeah. it wasn't like, 
you know, my mum was always trust your trust your gut, and if something makes you uncomfortable, it's not disrespectful to say that. You know, like right. yes, you show respect to your elders, but that doesn't mean you have to comply with them as well. You know, so if something's making you uncomfortable, then there's a reason for it, and you can tell me, you can talk to me. I could tell my mum anything, so I never felt like I was going to get into trouble when I told her about Guider. It was just more. I felt like I was letting her down and I knew I had to get my friend, but I was just, yeah, my mum was everything my whole life. She gave me knowledge about everything. She was, knowledge is the key. It keeps you yeah. safe. You know, you can't just keep people in the, or kids in the dark and, and you don't have to go into the nitty gritty. Like, you know, you don't have to go, oh, well, these are exactly specifically what could happen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's, I read this thing a long time ago and it was about trippy adults and it's just such a great way to explain it to your kids without terrifying them, but it yeah. makes so much sense. So the advice I'd give to adults and to parents is to have a Google about ways that you could talk to your kids that, you know, about the potential for, for adults to be tricky and to have bad intentions because there is, there's a good way to do it and I just think it's important that you have those conversations with your kids because it, it helps keep them, keep them safe. Yeah. I, I think it's critical that you have that conversation with your yeah. kids and you're yeah. 100% right. You know, you can say nothing and then the child doesn't know how to deal with that when they encounter it and they don't even know how to recognize it. No. Yeah. And, it's, and it's, exactly. It makes yeah. them naive. It yeah. makes them naive and it makes them they've got to, like, they've got to be compliant with adults because yeah. if you're not, then you're being disrespectful and that's, right. just not, that's just not truthful. You know, there's a difference between, I always tell my kids there's a difference between being disrespectful and, look, and taking care of yourself. So mm-hmm. if, if an adult is doing something that makes you uncomfortable or makes you fearful, then they're doing something wrong. You're yeah. not doing something wrong. And you can be as rude as you want to get you out of that. Whatever Absolutely. you've got to do to get out of that situation, that's yep. okay. Yep. So, you know, that's what I've told my kids. I've been very open and honest. And, I mean, I think kids, they just hear everything. So it's not like I've had a flat-out conversation with them about Guida, but they've, when all of the first, you know, interviews and petitions and marches were going on, I mean, they were there at the second march. They came to the other state, you know, so... They don't know the specifics of it, but they know that a bad man had contact with me when I was a child. They're aware that there are bad people out there and they're not necessarily boogeymen that look scary and things like that. They, It's just to trust your instincts and, um, yeah, or, yeah, I just think that having those conversations is, is super, super important. That's awesome. What advice would you give to any survivors who are experiencing anything such as this currently? What would be your advice to them about having courage or speaking up or even advocating just for themselves? I just think for any survivor, I think that you've all got a story to tell. And if you can't vocalize it, you know, out loud, to find a way that you can get it out because keeping it in doesn't help you, you know, like it, even if you don't want to get it out into, you know, I'm not saying you've got to go tell everyone, but write it on, down on paper or go down to the beach and yell it into the waves or something, but find a way to get it out of your system because keeping it in, it just, it keeps that little part of you very dark and sad and it's just not good for you. I think if you want to advocate, start by joining support groups because there are some very good ones out there and by seeing other people speak out, it really does help give you the courage to do so as well because you don't feel so alone. And yeah, just know that it's, it was never your fault, no matter whether your consciousness is telling you that or not. It, no matter what you did, no matter what situation you were in, it's not your fault at all. What would you tell six-year-old you today? I see every time I ask that question, that is probably the one question that makes me tear up because, you know, she was so innocent. I'd just tell her I was, I was so proud. I'm so proud of her. I'm just so proud of her and that, and she saved my life. I think she, she just saved, she saved lots of other lives. I just think she's fantastic. She's a hero. That's what I'd tell her. She's a hero. She's my hero. Well, when you talk to her, let her know she's our hero too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Chantal, <laughs> for talking to us today. You have such a beautiful story. Thank you. No, thank you for listening. Yeah. Um, and good luck with everything. I, You know, anything you do to help, please let me know. And yeah, just good luck because I think what you guys are doing is just incredible. It's the more people that help to make a difference and keep these things out there, it's just, 
you're all amazing. You're amazing and you're helping more people than I think you realise. Chantel, your unwavering perspective and dedication to advocacy are a testament to your remarkable courage. We extend our heartfelt appreciation for generously sharing your invaluable insights with us today. Your journey not only provides a profound understanding of the challenges inherent in advocating for legal change, but also underscores the urgent need for global reforms. The gaps that you've highlighted transcend borders, impacting not only Australia and the U.S., but reverberating throughout the world. Your voice resonates far and wide, igniting a crucial dialogue that demands our attention and action. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.